0: Matthew twenty-seven fifty-five to 61. There were also many women there, looking on from a distance, who had followed Jesus from Galilee, ministering to him, among whom were Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James and Joseph, and the mother of the sons of Zebedee. When it was evening, there came a rich man from Arimathea named Joseph, sitting opposite of the tomb. Let's pray over the word that we've just read. Heavenly Father, we've read from your word. We pray that as it's talked about, as we seek to understand it, that you would help to make sense of it and apply it to our lives. Speak through me, in place of me, to those listening. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Over the last few weeks, we've just witnessed the death of Jesus We've seen his crucifixion, we've seen all of the significance of his trial and all the circumstances around it, and we know over the past few weeks we've seen that Jesus died alone. And it's been hammered into us all throughout his trial, that Jesus was alone when he died. Of course, when he goes up to the hill called Golgotha, he's on his cross and there's Gentiles and Jews around him, so he's not alone in that sense. But... Those that are gathered around him, Jew and Gentile, are gathered there to mock him. What we mean by alone is that his disciples are gone. They deserted him rather quickly. In fact, the last time we saw the disciples as a whole was all the way back in chapter 26, verse 56. Do you remember? You can look up there in your Bibles, 26, 56, It says, but all this has taken place that the scriptures of the prophets might be fulfilled. Then all the disciples left him and fled. So all the disciples were gathered there together. Right as Jesus is arrested, he gives them one final command, and then they shot out of there like they were sent from a gun. Well, Peter obviously followed along. He was kind of under cloak of darkness. He was hidden as best he could. He tried to sort of sneak into the courtyard of the high priest just to watch the trial from a distance, but it's obvious that Peter did not want to be seen at all. He didn't want to be known. He didn't want to be associated with Jesus. He just wanted to watch. He wanted everybody else to leave him alone. And so when they started to point out, wait a second, I think you are part of his cohort, he denied Jesus three times. And so then he too went out, it says, and wept bitterly. So how alone was Jesus during this time? He was so alone that none of his friends were around him. All the people that surrounded him, they were gone. In fact, Matthew doesn't even mention this in his account. We know that John was there around the cross. We know that he was close by, but Matthew doesn't Obviously, He doesn't deny that, but He doesn't tell you about John because He's wanting you to see, He's wanting to emphasize the point that Jesus was, on the whole, abandoned by His disciples. He was left. They, they got out of there. They were terrified. When He's led away to be crucified, the Roman soldiers that are, are goading Him along, they're poking Him along the way, they actually have to get a complete stranger to carry His cross. That's how alone he is. No disciple even to tend to him to help him carry the cross up the hill. Well, this is not a great start for someone who's bringing the kingdom of heaven, is it? You would think. He's been telling us since the beginning of the gospel, the kingdom of heaven is at hand, and here he is, someone who is supposedly coming to redeem his people, saving them from their sins, Isn't he supposed to be exalted in the town square? Isn't hail to the chief to be blared on the loudspeakers so that everyone can hear it? Instead, he's mocked in the town square. All the Jews and the Gentiles, the entire population, who are not only torturing him to death, are standing around ridiculing him. But in in this passage where Jesus is buried, it's a passage that you could just probably just gloss right over. You can probably just pass right over in your reading and just take it as factually true. Jesus was buried in the tomb and not see a pivotal turn that's taking place right here in the text in front of us. Matthew is for sure making us aware of a couple of aspects of Jesus' burial of which we need to pay close attention. First is very simply that Jesus died. That's a shocker to everyone in here. I know we're we're breaking some new ground here. I get it. Comes as quite a shock to you, I'm sure. But obviously this is an issue that all of the gospel writers want to draw our attention to. Jesus really died. He died, died. Like how dead was he? He was super dead. He was as dead as someone could possibly be dead. He was that. He was dead. And the reason why that's important and the reason why the gospel writers zoom in on that and give you these little details that assure you of his death is because there's going to be a ton of lies that begin to circulate all around his death and his burial. And the gospel writers want you to be sure that the people who were there when he died actually also witnessed his burial and know that he was dead, dead. They're going to attempt in this very gospel to say that the body of Jesus was stolen. And that's only the tip of the iceberg of the kinds of lies that have circulated ever since about Jesus' death and burial. There's people today, even, that would say, Jesus wasn't really dead, he swooned. You go, what what does that mean, he swooned? Well, he kind of just fainted on the cross, and they sort of put him in the grave, and and then he kind of gathered his wits about him once he stopped swooning and escaped or something. It's the tip of the iceberg of the kinds of lies that have been circulated about Jesus' death, because here's the reality. For the atheist or the unbelieving or the agnostic, Jesus dying and rising from the dead poses a significant problem. You realize that? The biggest problem for the atheist is that there was a guy that died that everyone around him, 500 plus witnesses, said he rose from the dead and then they suffered for it on the backside. They were killed without recanting. That that is a significant issue, is the resurrection of Jesus. And so for the agnostic or for the atheist, there's really only a couple of things that you can do with the death of Jesus. The death and burial and resurrection of Jesus. First, you could say, one, he's still dead and his body was just misplaced or stolen, which is what they try to do here in the or in the text in a couple of weeks. It, He he was dead, but they just forgot where he was laid. His body was stolen. So you could do that. Or you could potentially say that he was never really dead to begin with. That he just swooned, as an example. They just thought he was dead. He wasn't really dead. And the Bible is actually going to counter both of those claims. First, you obviously see that there's witnesses that are around his burial. They, They know for sure. He was put in the tomb. And then, obviously, He resurrected. He really rose from the dead. How do we know that? Because He appeared to 500 people or more. We're going to see the resurrection in a few weeks. We obviously see throughout the Gospels, the resurrection becomes of central importance. Paul even reiterates this in 1 Corinthians 15, that he appeared to 500 people, many of whom you could ask to this day, many of whom suffered for their faith, that they were proclaiming Jesus really did rise from the dead. They were tortured, and they still remain true without recanting. So you can't really say he's still dead. You can't even say that they forgot where he buried him, because there's obviously witnesses around. The second argument that he was never really dead to begin with, the Gospel writers and even Matthew counters right here in this passage. First we see that the the burial itself, there was an actual burial. There was a man who took his body down off the cross and there were people that witnessed it. There's a man named Joseph. He comes from a Jewish town of Arimathea. We haven't seen him up until this point, but he asks for the body of Jesus. And in order to take the body and bury it, what does he do? He wraps it in a linen shroud. Now, one qualification for a body to be wrapped tightly in a linen shroud, as they would do, is that it not be breathing. We clear on that? If you're going to wrap it in a linen shroud, well, he can't be alive. Because if he's alive, that'll kill him. It'll suffocate him to death. So, he's not breathing. He's wrapped in a linen shroud. His burial is then observed, not only by Joseph, of course, who does it, but then observed by the women who see where Joseph lays him, and we'll see them returning to the burial place in a couple of weeks. Now, it, it needs to be mentioned, Joseph is in a hurry here. He's in a hurry to bury Jesus. Obviously, the Passover is approaching, so that that's one thing, but it also seems that the Sabbath is approaching as well. That's coming up soon at sunfall. And so all of those are really important, but Joseph is likely, because he touches a dead body, not going to be able to participate in the festivities of the Passover, which is why everybody's there in Jerusalem. Most importantly, the reason Joseph is in a hurry is out of obedience to Deuteronomy 21, 22 to 23, which says this, with shocking candor, it says, and if a man has committed a crime punishable by death, and he is put to death, and you hang him on a tree. His body shall not remain all night on the tree, but you shall bury him the same day, for a hanged man is cursed by God. It's almost as if God put that there just so that we would, no, but anyway, I digress. You shall not defile your land that the Lord your God is giving you for an inheritance. So there's some sense of urgency with which Joseph is taking this man down. So he's verified dead by Joseph of Arimathea. He's verified dead by several women who watch him be buried. He's wrapped in a linen cloth, which would otherwise suffocate him. He's put in a rock tomb with a stone rolled, which we'll see in, uh, later is going to be sealed, which would obviously cut off oxygen going into the tomb, which doesn't bode well for him escaping, let me just say that. And so the second reason, so the first reason is we, we see all these witnesses gathered around to verify this man is dead. But the second reason that we know he was really dead is because the Roman government is releasing the body to Joseph of Arimathea. There's no chance that a Roman crucifixion is going to be cut short, you understand. The Romans are experts in death. They're experts In torture, there is zero chance they're going to release a body to someone before it's dead. Normally, they wouldn't release it at all. Normally, the body is going to hang there on the cross as a sign to all the people that are passing by, and it will stay there for weeks on end until it rots and decays and eventually will be taken down and thrown into the grave of a commoner, basically just a common grave, just a hole in a field, basically. No markings, no stones, no, no nothing, just a common grave, rather than the custody being handed over to the family. Most commonly, the family wouldn't even be interested in taking the body because they're so ashamed that their loved one was even crucified to begin with. In fact, Mark tells us as much in Mark 15, 44-45, he says this, Pilate was surprised to hear that he should have already died. And summoning the centurion, he asked him whether he was already dead. And when he learned from the centurion that he was dead, he granted the corpse to Joseph. So he's dead. He's for sure dead. But the importance of honing in on the death of Christ And the importance of me even highlighting it this morning in the passage that's in front of us is to point out that His death was in every way substitutionary. Meaning that His death was instead of you. Do you understand? His death took your place. So the death of Christ was not merely at the hands of men. It certainly was at the hands of men. We saw that. it was The Romans crucified him. The Jews were cohorts in that. Surely it was at the hands of men. Yes. But it was also at the hands of God. We saw from Isaiah 53 and several other passages that it was the Lord's will to crush him, Isaiah says. Jesus' death was at the hands of God. And why was his death at the hands of God? so that yours wouldn't have to be. Do you understand that? Jesus' death was taking your place on the cross. He was suffering the wrath of God in your stead. He was doing it for you. Now we've seen over the last few weeks a number of aspects of Christ's death where Matthew is telling you that Jesus is doing this for you. He's doing this so you won't have to. He, several times he refers to himself as drinking the cup, the cup of God's wrath. He's draining the cup. Even his prayer in the Garden of Gethsemane is reminding us that he's going to drink the cup of God's wrath so that you won't have to drink the cup of God's wrath. We saw when he's put up in, before the people and there's a, another prisoner that's put up next to him, the commoner by the name of Barabbas was put up next to him. He's an insurrectionist. He's an insurrectionist against Rome. And Jesus actually takes his place on the cross. The insurrectionist against Rome is meant to be crucified. The innocent man, Jesus, is meant to go free. But instead Jesus substitutes himself for the insurrectionist and the insurrectionist goes free. Matthew, the gospel writers, they're making sure you understand the exchange that's happening there. Christ is being crucified in between Barabbas' cohorts, these two robbers on his left and his right. For Barabbas! For you! You're the insurrectionist against the kingdom of heaven, and Christ is suffering the wrath of God in your stead. It's in your place. He's dying. And then because of his death, and his subsequent resurrection... What did you see last week in the passage just before this one? There were people that rose from the dead. Jeremy touched on this last week. He brought this up, or the the text brought this up, that there are people that actually rose from the dead as a result of Christ's resurrection. And what that's intended, intended to signify to you is that Christ's death and resurrection had an impact on other people's death you realize this, his death overturned the curse that was handed down all the way back in Genesis 3, going all the way back to the Last Supper. He's sitting there with his disciples, and he tells them to drink this cup, which is symbolic of his blood, which is shed for them. So there's time and again, over, especially over the last few chapters, we've seen in Matthew time and again that in nearly every passage, Matthew is clearly demonstrating to his readers that Christ's death is in place of yours. That's its intention. Now, in his burial, he's placed in whose tomb? The tomb of his disciple. So, He's got no headstone, he's got no insignia indicating that this is where they laid him. Just a meaningless hole in the ground is where they would intend to bury criminals. But that's not what happens with Jesus. He not only took the cross for his disciple, he took the wrath of God for his disciple, and now he takes the tomb for his disciple. But this is where it begins to turn. And it takes an unexpected jog to the right. In the wake of Jesus' death, his disciples grow bolder. You see this? In the wake of his death... His disciples grow bolder. The term disciple is going to be used in every passage from here until the end of the book, until Jesus actually commissions his disciples. So it's clear that Matthew is really wanting to hone in on this idea. What does it actually mean for you to be a disciple of Jesus? What does it actually mean for you to follow Jesus? If you intend on following Christ, then you've really got to understand what's required of a disciple. In this passage, the boldness of the disciples comes into sharp focus. And it happens in the person of Joseph of Arimathea and this group of ladies that are following close by. The ladies, we discover, uh, are several. Some that are named and some, by implication, are probably unnamed. So there's probably actually quite a significant group of ladies that are following along. We see in verse 56 that it's Mary Magdalene. Mary, the mother of James and Joseph, and the mother of the sons of Zebedee. Now, in the other Gospels, like John, we we learn that Jesus' mother, Mary, is there at the cross. And because Jesus has brothers named James and Joseph, we take it that Mary, the mother of James and Joseph there in verse 56, is actually Mary, Jesus' mom. The mother of the sons of Zebedee is likely Jesus' aunt, She goes by the name of Salome in other Gospels, and she's the mother of James and John, the sons of Zebedee. And of course, there's Mary Magdalene, who's also there, whom Jesus had cast out several demons. We learn that from Luke, and these are probably not all of the women. But these ladies, you need to understand, are taking great risk to their own life to follow along where Jesus is laid. Jesus, you'll remember, has just faced the scorn of both Rome and of the Jews. He is public enemy number one, and they are voluntarily associating with him. Do you understand how risky that is? He's the most rejected man in all of society, and yet they're following along right with him. When I was a kid, a neighbor friend of mine named Jonathan had a zip line. He had a clubhouse in the trees, was a treehouse, and then a a zip line that went from the treehouse in case you wanted to make a quick exit. As a nine-year-old, you never know when it might come in handy to just to make a quick exit. So you'd go up the ladder and you'd go down the zip line. One day, Jonathan, another friend of mine named Andrew and I got this bright idea that it was fun to go down the zip line by ourselves, but how much more fun would it be if we all went down together? Brilliant plan. Nothing could go wrong. Soon as our feet left the treehouse, the branch that was holding the zip line just snapped. Massive, massive branch could have killed any one of us. So then we fell to our death. When the Lord restored us to life again, We saw that this massive tree branch that could have paralyzed any one of us had actually landed on Jonathan's knee, busted his leg wide open. Blood was going everywhere. Sorry if you're squeamish. I didn't mean to be gory here. We realized two realities at the same time. First, Jonathan needed help. We had to get under each arm. We had to help him go all the way back to his house. The zip line was all the way back at the back of the property, so it was like an acre we had to walk just to get back to the house. That was the first thing we realized. The second reality that soon hit us was that we were in big trouble. Parents don't like when shenanigans result in injury for some reason. I don't know why. And so we helped him into his, to his house, and we sort of just kind of let him walk across the threshold himself. And once the glass door closed behind him and we heard the weeping and gnashing of teeth on the other side, we were then met at a crossroads where we realized we could do one of two things. We could stay and face the music, or we could run. Now, staying to face the music meant that probably there was going to be a belt extended across our hind parts. You know, remember back then, your neighbor could spank you. You remember those days? (laughs) <laughs> now your parents can't even do it. <laughs> so, it was, a, it was a problem. We realized when trouble arises, there is, the, the reality that hits you is, you need to get out of it. So put yourself just in the shoes of Jesus' followers here for just a second. Jesus' public enemy number one, he's just been crucified He is dead. It is with great risk to their own lives that these disciples maintain their associations with Jesus even in his death. You needn't look any further than the eleven disciples. One's already betrayed and left, handed him over to the authorities. The other eleven have fled in one way or another. Peter denied his association with Jesus while Jesus was still alive and then he also got out of there. Eleven grown men, or at least ten grown men, if you don't count John, are hiding in a room somewhere when this is going on. Yet here remain Jesus' mama and her sisters and her friends. It's proof positive that that whole mama bear thing is true. The whole Roman army cannot separate Mary from her baby. Most importantly, it's what he represents. He is the Son of God who has died on their behalf. Now that's not what should be happening. Matthew's been telling us since the beginning how alone Jesus is. All of his disciples have gone. They've all fled. He didn't have anyone to carry his cross. One disciple turned him in, another denied him, and the rest fled. At the moment where Jesus dies, the disciples have every reason... To give up hope, don't they? They have every reason to just let the moment pass. The moment's over. The kingdom has not come. It's all been a farce. There's absolutely nothing to gain at this point when Jesus is dead by following and There's everything to lose. And then all of a sudden, when it seems as all hope is lost, we find out that Jesus still has some disciples. And these disciples come out of the woodwork. There's not only the ladies, but then there's Joseph of Arimathea. Who is this guy? We haven't even heard of him until this point in the Gospel. At the moment where he has nothing to gain and everything to lose, he appears onto the scene and what does he do? He asks Pilate for the body. We learn that he's a wealthy man, which Matthew tells us, which should remind us of Isaiah 53, verse 9. And they made his grave with the wicked and with a rich man in his death. In the other Gospels, we see that he's also a member of the Sanhedrin. John tells us he was a disciple of Jesus, but he was one secretly because he feared the Jews. So then what does it tell you that Joseph of Arimathea is coming forward now asking to take Jesus' body and bury it in his own tomb? He's telling you that he has nothing to fear. He's telling you that he has nothing to be afraid of. He is a disciple, but he's he's now one openly. He goes to Pilate. He asks for Jesus' body. Now, touching an unclean body would mean that he's not able to partake in the festivities of that week. But not only that, he's going to be outed as a disciple of this deceased king. Why would you want to be known as that? But it raises the question. What does it mean To be a disciple of Jesus. What does it actually mean to be a disciple of Jesus? Now, if we are keenly aware as readers, as people who have studied the book of Matthew, we should be aware by this point that Jesus' death was substitutionary for us. Brothers and sisters, what does that actually mean to us? What does that mean we become as his disciples? If his death is substitutionary for us, if he took the wrath of God for us, what does that actually mean for our life as a disciple? Well, Matthew's already answered that question just a few verses earlier when he talks about the tombs being opened. Look at what he says. The tombs in verse, uh, sorry, verse 52 and 53. The tombs also were opened, and many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised. And coming out of the tombs after his resurrection, they went into the holy city and appeared to many. Isn't it strange that Matthew just tells you about the resurrection before he ever even gets to the resurrection? He doesn't even say, spoiler alert, Jesus is going to raise from the dead. He doesn't tell you any of that. He just tells you when Jesus was raised from the dead, there were several others that raised with him, they appeared to many, and they were gone. Why does he do that? It's probably the same reason why Joseph of Arimathea no longer cares to be in hiding. It's probably the same reason these women literally don't care what the Roman government would do to them. Do you you realize in the resurrection account of Jesus, the women are going back and forth between the room and the tomb And the disciples are behind the locked door. They grasp something about the death of Christ that even the disciples don't grasp at this point. Death is is always going to be on the list of people's greatest fears. Normally it's going to be somewhere close to the top, just behind public speaking. You'd rather... You'd rather die than get up in front of people and speak. <laughs> but, but it's always going to be amongst people's greatest fears, death. But actually, if you look at the list of fears that people have, death is actually throughout most of them. Why are you afraid of heights? Because you might fall off and hit the bottom, thus die. Why are you afraid of snakes? Because one might bite you and kill you. And they're creepy. Answer would have also been accepted. But how would your life change? How would your life change if you were no longer afraid of death? What would happen if you literally had no fear of death anymore? How would your life change Matthew is telling us that the Christian no longer has to have a fear of death. See, Jesus' death in my place means I don't have to fear what comes next. That's the reason he tells you about the resurrection. You don't have to fear what comes next. What's on the other side? So many people in our culture are asking that question. What happens after death? I don't know. I fear about crossing the great Rubicon, crossing the great beyond, doing all of those kinds of things. I fear what happens next. The Christian no longer has to be afraid of what happens next. No longer do you have to fear. The resurrection tells you what happens next. Not only the resurrection of Jesus, but the resurrection of the saints from the tombs as well tells you what happens next. You don't have to fear the wrath of God. Jesus drank the cup of wrath for you. So, Christian, you don't have to fear. Not only do you not have to fear death, but you don't have to fear meeting the judge of all creation, standing before him and having to face his wrath. Jesus is your defense attorney who is standing in your place. He already took the wrath of God for you. All you need is faith in him, trust in him. That's it. So, what awaits you is not, is not fear, what awaits you is not wrath. What awaits you is not judgment. What awaits you is the crown of life. What awaits you is eternal life. What awaits you is everlasting joy. And why do we have to wait for this? Because Christ died for us. That's what awaits awaits us. We have nothing to fear. It's the reason we can join Paul in saying death is gain. Can you say that? Can you say death is gain? Because listen, what it means to be a disciple is understanding death holds no sway over me any longer. The verdict has already been given. I no longer have to fear what comes next. And if death no longer holds sway over me, then I have every reason to be bold. That's the reason you see the boldness of people that actually follow Christ. It's the reason that Jesus tells all the disciples throughout the Gospel of Matthew, if you want to be my disciple, you need to take up your cross and follow me. What kind of boldness is present in taking up your cross and marching to your own death? Do you realize what kind of confidence is there? What could you possibly be threatened with if you no longer have death to fear? In fact, just like we've seen here with the reaction of the women and with Joseph, Joseph, who have every reason to run and, and, and nothing really to gain that we see. Jesus' his disciples, in the midst of the darkness of the culture, grow bolder. So then I ask you, how should we respond as his disciples? The culture around you is probably as dark as it's been in a long time. And I want to tell you, there's sometimes where we're tempted to really give in to the darkness of the culture, and instead of growing in boldness, we grow in timidity and fear. And here's how you'll hear it. Any parent who has had children will hear this from the generation that's ahead of us, maybe a couple of generations ahead of us. They'll say to us, I really fear what it would be like to raise kids in this age. You ever heard that? Maybe you have ever said that, take that and just throw it in the garbage where it belongs. That is the exact opposite of responding in boldness. Christian, you have every reason as a parent to be as bold as you possibly can because there's nothing they can take from you. There is absolutely nothing they can take from you. If they can't take your life, what do they have? Nothing. The threats have no teeth. In reality, we as Christians should respond by having more kids. If you're in the era of your life where you're having kids, add like six or eight more. If you're engaged to be married, listen, we got a new one. All right? Lots and lots of kids. Start early. Have lots and lots of kids. Raise them in the fear and admonition of the Lord. Send them out as missionaries. That's the purpose of our children. They're arrows in the quiver. But they're not meant to stay in the quiver. They needn't stay there past like 18. They need to be shot out. They're meant to be sent into the world as missionaries people that proclaim the name of Christ. You pray for them. You raise them. You teach them what it means to serve the Lord and send them out into the dark world. There's a reason we want kids to be in here. We know that there's noise, that there's movement, that there's all kinds of things. We understand that there's bathroom trips. We get all of that, all right? but we want them in here. We want them to learn what it means to worship the Lord. And they're not going to learn that by sitting over in a building somewhere. They're going to learn that by watching you, their parent. They're going to learn that by watching the body around them respond to God in His Word. They're going to respond to the preaching of His Word. And you'll be amazed at how quickly they'll get it. Be bold as parents. Don't be timid. Don't be weak. But it also means we need to grow in our boldness as witnesses for Christ. They tell you in your workplace, you can't say that here. Who says? Who says I can't say that here? The word tells me that I can say that here. And so I'm going to. What are you going to take from me? See, we have to be bold, so bold as to not care if death comes for us. Because look, the world that's watching us, that's asking, Do you really, is there any real validity to this thing? It undermines the truth of the Scriptures when you cower in fear at the culture around you. When you shut up and you don't proclaim the Gospel, you don't tell your neighbor what's true in the Word, when you don't correct them in sin, when you don't speak out about the gospel, when you don't do those things and you cower in fear instead because you're worried about what's going to happen to the relationship, you're worried about what's going to happen to the family member, you're worried about what they're going to say about you behind your back, when you worry about all those things, you tell the world that you don't really believe this is true. Because what everybody knows, the world knows that what's in here is that it tells people not to cower in fear. It tells people they don't have to worry about death. Well, then what do you believe, Christian? Let me tell you, if we hide in our houses, if we refuse to tell our friends the gospel, if we fail to engage with the unbelieving neighbor or friend, family member, person at the grocery store, barber, whoever, if we fail to engage them, what do we tell them? I don't really believe this is true. What I'd rather do is preserve my friendship here. What I tell them is that this world is all I've got. And I'm going to cling to it as hard as I can. But if instead you turn and you become a bold witness for Christ. And you tell the gospel to the people that you're worried about. You invite them to church. You let them know what truth can be found in scripture. You tell them that this world is not my home. I'm just passing through. I'm tired of seeing blank spots in the pews? Me too. It's on each and every single one of us. You got to open your mouth and you got to tell. We can talk about missional strategies all day long. We can talk about gospel tracks that you could use all day long. We could talk about different ways of engaging in conversation all day long. But it doesn't matter if we cower in fear and we don't actually open our mouth to tell someone the gospel. You realize all the missional strategies, all the planning, all the everything is going to end right there when you're standing on the doorstep of an individual or you're sitting at the table with an individual and you open your mouth and you tell them what you believe to be true about the gospel. None of it matters unless we're willing to associate with Christ like that.